Section 2B, The Air Force and the Post-Cold War. 2.13, American-Soviet Relations. In a 23 March 1983 address, President Ronald W. Reagan proposed replacing the doctrine of mutually assured destruction with one of assured survival through implementation of the Strategic Defense Initiative. The Strategic Defense Initiative would include a combination of defensive systems such as space-based lasers, particle beams, rail guns, and fast ground-launched missiles to intercept intercontinental ballistic missiles in the Earth's outer atmosphere and ballistic path in space. Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty Beginning in March 1985, Soviet Communist Party General, Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev, initiated major changes in Soviet-American relations. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty of December 1987 eliminated medium-range nuclear missiles, including U.S. Air Force ground-launch cruise missiles. Gorbachev's announcement in May 1988 that the Soviet Union, after nine years of inconclusive combat, would withdraw from the war in Afghanistan, resulted in reduced Cold War tension, but it was only a hint of the rapid changes ahead. Relatively free and open Russian national elections in March 1989, followed by a coal miner strike in July, shook the foundations of communist rule. East Germany opened the Berlin Wall in November 1989, which led to German reunification in October 1990. The August 1991 coup against Gorbachev, led by Boris Yeltsin, resulted in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, replaced on 25 December 1991 by the Commonwealth of Independent States. The end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union eliminated the justification for sustained levels of research and development, although research continued at a much lower level. Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties American nuclear strategy changed significantly in response to post-Cold War policies and initiatives. The Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty Start 1 signed by the United States and the Soviet Union in July 1991, went into effect in 1994, and expired in 2009. Under START 1, the United States agreed to reduce arms to 6,000 total warheads on deployed intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and heavy bombers. The U.S. Air Force, by presidential direction in September 1991, notifies Strategic Air Command to remove heavy bombers from alert status. Strategic Air Command was subsequently inactivated in June 1992. U.S. Strategic Command replaced Strategic Air Command and assumed control of all remaining U.S. Air Force and Navy Strategic Nuclear Forces. START II, signed in January 1993 by the United States and Russia, would reduce total deployed warheads up to a range of 3,500 nautical miles. But the agreement never officially went into effect. In 1997, START 3 was initiated, but was never signed due to negotiations breaking down between the two countries. A new START program, officially named Measures for the Further Reduction and Limitation of Strategic Offensive Arms, was signed into effect in 2011 and is expected to last at least until 2021. 2.14 Iraqi Invasion of Kuwait Operation Desert Shield On 2 August 1990, Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein ordered 100,000 troops to invade oil-rich Kuwait, claiming Kuwait as Iraq's 19th province. The invasion, with the fourth-largest army in the world and an extensive program to develop nuclear weapons, put Iraq on the doorstep of Saudi Arabia with vast petroleum reserves. If the Saudis were to fall to Iraq, the dictator would then control 50% of the world's oil. 
the United States sought and received a United Nations sanction to act against Iraq and joined 27 other nations to launch Operation Desert Shield. The defensive deployment was an impressive accomplishment. On 8 August 1990, 24 F-15Cs landed in Saudi Arabia after departing 15 hours earlier from Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, some 8,000 miles away. Within one week, C-141 and C-5 transports delivered the Army 82nd Airborne Division and elements of the Air Force 1st Tactical Fighter Wing to defend Saudi Arabia and the other Persian Gulf states against further aggression. Less than one month after mobilization, 1,220 Allied aircraft were in theater and combat ready, aimed first at deterring Saddam Hussein from aggression against the Saudis, then preparing for a counter-invasion, if necessary. Operation Desert Shield eclipsed the Berlin Airlift as the greatest air deployment in history. Between August 1990 and January 1991, Military Airlift Command cargo planes conducted 20,500 strategic airlift missions, delivered 534,000 personnel, and carried 542,000 tons of cargo to the theater. President George H.W. Bush demanded the immediate withdrawal of Iraqi forces from Kuwait, believing that the American public lacked the stomach for war. For more than six months, Saddam Hussein alternated between defiance and vague promises of compliance. When Saddam missed the final deadline to withdraw his troops from Kuwait, the United States lost patience with Saddam's refusal to cooperate and initiated Operation Desert Storm. At 0100, 17 January 1991, three Air Force Special Operations MH-53J Pavlo helicopters led nine Army Apaches on the first strike mission. Under the command of Lieutenant General Charles A. Horner, U.S. Central Command Air Forces, 2,700 aircraft from 14 countries implemented the master attack plan. Within hours, the world watched live television coverage while Iraqi skies filled with anti-aircraft artillery fire. In response to Iraq's modified Soviet Scud missiles launched against Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Persian Gulf states, the U.S. Air Force commenced what became known as the Great Scud Hunt with a fleet of A-10s, F-16s, and F-15Es with low-altitude navigation and targeting infrared for night pods. The F-117A struck heavily defended targets with unprecedented precision and successfully evaded the sophisticated Iraqi anti-aircraft defenses. A flight of seven B-52Gs flew nonstop from Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana, to strike Iraqi power stations and communications facilities. At 35 hours round trip, the 14,000-mile raid was the longest combat mission up to that time, and proof of America's global reach the fleet shattered Iraqi army morale with massive bomb drops. After establishing air dominance and destroying the enemy's command and control system, coalition forces turned their attention to entrenched enemy ground forces, who were evidently willing to surrender to the first Allied troops they saw. When one Iraqi commander candidly asserted that he surrendered because of B-52 strikes, his interrogator pointed out that his position had never been attacked by the B-52. That is true, the Iraqi asserted but I saw one that had been attacked. While coalition ground forces delivered General Schwarzkopf's famous Hail Mary outflanking maneuver that applied the final blow to the Iraqi military forces, air power set the stage for victory. As stated in the Gulf War Air Power Survey, it was not the number of Iraqi tanks or artillery pieces destroyed, or the number of Iraqi soldiers killed that mattered. It was the effectiveness of the air campaign in breaking apart the organizational structure and cohesion of enemy military forces. 
and in reaching the mind of the Iraqi soldier that counted. On 28 February 1991, scarcely 48 hours after the air war ended and the land invasion took center stage, Iraq surrendered to the coalition. Despite over 2,700 sorties, 22% of the strategic air phase, the enemy managed to launch 88 scuds, including one that struck a U.S. Army Reserve unit at Dauran, Saudi Arabia, killing 28 soldiers and wounding 98. Over the course of the air campaign, the coalition flew over 180,000 sorties, of which the U.S. Air Force flew 60%. In the 43-day war, the Air Force was, for the first time in modern combat, the equal partner of land and sea power, Gulf War space assets. The Gulf War represented the first extensive broad-based employment of space support capabilities. Coalition forces employed more than 60 military satellites, as well as commercial and civil sector systems during the conflict. The Defense Meteorological Satellite Program provided dedicated meteorological support in theater, which helped facilitate safe, highly effective combat power planning and application in a harsh environment characterized by sandstorms and oil fires. Satellite-based systems delivered more than 90% of all communications to and from the theater due to the sheer volume and the lack of ground-based infrastructure. At the height of the conflict, 700,000 phone calls and 152,000 messages per day flowed over satellite links. Air Force space assets provided precision positioning and navigation to joint and coalition forces with the combat debut of the global positioning system. Space forces also provided advanced Iraqi Scud launch warnings that gave coalition partners sufficient time to engage the incoming missiles. Space Force capabilities influenced Israel to remain neutral, thereby preserving the integrity of the coalition as well. The Persian Gulf War was the first conflict to highlight the force enhancement capabilities of space-based communications, intelligence, navigation, missile warning, weather satellites, and precision-guided munitions in modern warfare with the joint community. First female space shuttle commander, Eileen M. Collins. Eileen M. Collins, an Air Force officer and National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA astronaut, was the first woman to command a space shuttle mission. She became an astronaut in 1991, was initially assigned to the Orbiter Engineering Support Team, and led several offices while working on the spacecraft program. On 3-11 February 1995, aboard the spacecraft Discovery, Colonel Collins flew the first flight of the Russian-American space program. On 15-24 to 24 May 1997, aboard the spacecraft Atlantis, Colonel Collins flew on NASA's sixth shuttle mission to rendezvous and dock with the Russian space station, MIR. On 22-27 July 1999, aboard the spacecraft Columbia, Colonel Collins became the first woman to command a shuttle mission. On 26 July to 9 August 2005, aboard the spacecraft Discovery, Colonel Collins was a member of the crew that conducted the return-to-flight mission during which the shuttle docked with the International Space Station. By the time she retired from NASA in 2006, Colonel Collins logged more than 6,750 hours in 30 different types of aircraft and conducted four space flights, logging over 872 hours in space. Colonel Collins has been recognized as one of the top 300 women in history who has had an impact on changing the world. Iraqi Kurd Population and Operation Provide Comfort 1 In 1991, following the Persian Gulf War, Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein attacked the Kurdish population in northern Iraq. 
featuring a repeat of the previous threat of brutal suppression, chemical weapons, and massacres by Iraqi troops. More than a million Kurds fled to Iran and Turkey and hundreds of thousands more gathered on cold mountain slopes on the Iraqi-Turkish border. Lacking food, clean water, clothing, blankets, medical supplies, and shelter, the refugees suffered enormous mortality rates. In response to the unfolding tragedy, the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 688 and authorized a humanitarian relief effort. The United States organized and combined a task force for Operation Provide Comfort that delivered 7,000 tons of supplies and airlifted thousands of displaced Kurds to safety. Operation Provide Comfort officially ended two months after it began. Iraqi Kurd Population and Operation Provide Comfort 2 Operation Provide Comfort 2 began the day Operation Provide Comfort ended. The primary focus for this operation was to prevent Iraqi aggression against the Kurds once they returned to their country. The operation ended officially on 31 December 1996 at the request of the Turkish government who wanted to improve relations with Iran and Iraq. To accommodate the request, while still providing support and security to the region, Operation Provide Comfort 2 was followed by Operation Northern Watch, which began on 1 January 1997 with the mission of enforcing the northern no-fly zone. No-fly zones over Iraq and Operation Southern and Northern Watch. Operation Southern Watch began on 27 August 1992 and lasted until 26 August 2003. Operation Southern Watch began one day after President Bush announced a no-fly zone in southern Iraq in support of United Nations Security Council Resolution 688 to discourage renewed Iraqi military activity near Kuwait. The resolution protected Shiite Muslims under aerial attack from the Iraqi regime. Operation Northern Watch was initiated by President William J. Clinton to establish no-fly zones north of the 36th parallel. The expansion meant that most of Iraqi airspace fell into no-fly zones. Operation Northern Watch lasted until 17 March 2003. It officially ended two days before Operation Iraqi Freedom began. Figure 2.2 is provided to show the northern and southern no-fly zones. 2.15 Military Support and Humanitarian Relief While engaged with the Gulf War, including participation in operations for many years in the region following the Gulf War, the U.S. Air Force was also providing military support and humanitarian relief around the world. Bay of Bengal Typhoon and Operation Sea Angel In addition to the Gulf War, the Air Force performed a number of humanitarian missions to various countries around the world. In 1991, a typhoon swept over Bangladesh with thunderstorms and winds of up to 150 miles per hour, causing damages estimated to be $1.5 billion. The typhoon caused a 20-foot storm surge over the country, killing 138,000 people and destroying homes of more than 10 million others. In response to the devastation, the airmen, Marines and sailors delivered 3,000 tons of supplies to Bangladesh during Operation Sea Angel. Soviet Union support and Operation Provide Hope. Operation Provide Hope began in 1992. The former Soviet Union was transitioning from a communist country to a capitalist nation that left much of its population struggling for survival. Not only were people living in the capital cities suffering, there was dire need of support in the outlying cities as well. The Operation Provide Hope airlift mission lasted approximately two weeks, 
with the ongoing efforts of helping build sustainable medical services lasting almost two years. The operation ultimately provided 25,000 tons of food, medicine, and other cargo to the former Soviet Union. Somalia Relief and Operation Provide Relief In 1992, unrest in the wake of a two-year civil war contributed to a famine in Somalia that killed up to 350,000 people. As many as 800,000 refugees fled the stricken country. The United Nations led a relief effort in July 1992 to address the suffering of refugees near the Kenya-Somalia border and in Somalia itself. The United States initiated Operation Provide Relief two months later. By December, 19,000 tons of food were airlifted into the region, often under the hail of small arms fire. Civil war and clan fighting prevented much of the supplies from getting into the hands of those who desperately needed them. Somalia Relief and Operations Impressive Lift and Restore Hope 1 In September 1992, to address the issues of famine in Somalia, the United States initiated Operation Impressive Lift to airlift hundreds of Pakistani soldiers under the United Nations banner to provide aid in Somalia. Despite efforts and increased security from the United Nations, the problems continued. On 4 December 1992, President Bush authorized Operation Restore Hope to establish order in Somalia so that food could reach those in need. With U.S. Marines on the ground and with control of the airport, flights were able to resume. During Operation Restore Hope, we airlifted 32,000 of our troops into Somalia. By 4 May 1993, fewer than 5,000 remained when it officially ended. Somalia Relief and Operation Restore Hope 2 after Operation Restore Hope ended, factional fighting within Somalia continued, causing relief efforts to unravel yet again. On 3 October 1993, U.S. Special Forces, in an effort to capture members of a dangerous disruptive clan, returned to Somalia. The team lost 18 personnel and suffered 84 wounded. In response, during Operation Restore Hope 2, we airlifted 1,700 of our troops and 3,100 tons of cargo into Mogadishu between 5 and 13 October 1993 to stabilize the situation. President Clinton refused to commit the United States to nation-building and Operation Restore Hope 2 officially ended 25 March 1994 when the last C-5 departed Mogadishu. While Operation Restore Hope 2 allowed our troops to get out of the country without further casualties, anarchy ruled and the threat of famine remained in Somalia. Notable Bravery in Somalia Timothy A. Wilkinson In the late afternoon of 3 October 1993, Timothy A. Wilkinson, a para-rescue man with the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, responded with his crew to the downing of a UH-60 helicopter in the streets of Mogadishu, Somalia. Wilkinson was repeatedly exposed to intense enemy small arms fire while extracting the injured and mortally wounded from the crashed helicopter. Despite his own injuries, he provided life-saving medical treatment to the crew members, then turned to the ranger security element engaged in an intense firefight across an open four-way intersection. From his position where he began immediate medical treatment, his personal courage and bravery under heavy enemy fire were integral to the success of all casualty treatment and evacuation efforts conducted in the intense 18-hour combat engagement. Master Sergeant Wilkinson was awarded the Air Force Cross for his heroic actions. Eastern Europe Stabilization and Operation Provide Promise Leading up to the initiation of Operation Provide Promise, 
The collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, coupled with the disintegration of the Soviet Union itself, dissolved the political bind that tied ethnically diverse Yugoslavia as a single nation. Roman Catholic Slovenia and Croatia declared their independence from the Yugoslav Federation that was dominated by Eastern Orthodox Serbia. In early 1992, predominantly Muslim Bosnia-Herzegovina, Bosnia, also severed ties with the Federation. Fearing their minority status, Serbs within Bosnia reacted by enforcing their ethnic state, seizing territory, and besieging the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo. In July 1992, the United States became involved with the United Nations efforts in Operation Provide Promise. C-130 crews on three-week deployments flew out of Rhine-Main Air Base, Germany, to deliver food and medical supplies to the region. The effort was supported by 15 additional countries also airlifting relief supplies to Sarajevo. Briefly, to supplement efforts, Operation Provide Santa kicked off in December 1993, when C-130s dropped 50 tons of toys and children's clothing and shoes. On 14 December 1995, Warring factions signed peace accords at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, calling for an end to humanitarian air land deliveries into Sarajevo. During Operation Provide Promise, aircraft supporting the United Nations relief operation withstood 279 incidents of ground fire and was the longest-running humanitarian airlift in history, lasting over three and a half years. War in Bosnia and Operation Deny Flight On 12 April 1993, Operation Deny Flight began as a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO effort to limit the war in Bosnia through imposition of a no-fly zone over the country and served to provide close air support for United Nations troops in Bosnia. The mission faced challenges, particularly when Bosnian Serbs took lightly armed United Nations forces hostage to use as leverage against continued airstrikes. The United Nations agreed to veto further strikes on the Serbs but the mission was still taking strikes from Serb aggressors. Operation Deny Flight ended on 20 December 1995, bringing a close to the 100,000 sorties flown in efforts of ending turmoil in the region. Haitian Control and Operation Uphold Democracy On 8 September 1994, the United States launched Operation Uphold Democracy to remove the military regime that had overthrown Haitian President John Bertrand Aristide. The U.S. Atlantic Command developed two different plans, one for the forcible entry and the other for passive entry. While U.S. Air Force planners worked through variations of both invasion strategies, an aerial force of more than 200 aircraft were activated to bear an overwhelming force of strength, if needed. At nearly the last minute, a diplomatic proposal offered by former President James E. Carter persuaded the military leader in Haiti to relinquish control. This move allowed the mission to be implemented as an insertion of a multinational peacekeeping force and application of the passive entry plan. The successful adaptation to airlifting peacekeeping troops was a major indicator of the flexibility air power offers military and political leaders in fulfilling foreign policy objectives. U.S. Air Force involvement effectively ended 12 October 1994. Three days later, the Haitian president returned to his country. Kuwaiti Border Protection and Operation Vigilant Warrior In October 1994, Iraqi troops, including the elite Iraqi Republican Guard, massed at the Kuwaiti border. Saddam Hussein had begun aggressive posturing for power once again. The United States responded with Operation Vigilant Warrior, 
thousands of additional U.S. Armed Forces personnel entered into the theater. As a result of the American response, Kuwait was not invaded, and Iraq recalled its ground forces away from the border. Operation Vigilant Warrior officially ended on 15 December 1994. Bosnian Serb attacks and Operation Deliberate Force. In 1995, after a mortar shell killed 37 civilians in Sarajevo, Operation Deliberate Force served notice to Bosnian Serb forces that they would be held accountable for their actions. Operation Deliberate Force airstrikes were launched against Bosnian Serb targets throughout the country. This was the first campaign in aerial warfare where precision munitions outweighed conventional bombs. The incessant air campaign garnered the desired results. Operation Deliberate Force played a key role in ending the war in Bosnia. On 14 September that same year, the Serbs agreed to NATO terms and the bombing stopped. Operation Deliberate Force officially ended on 21 September 1995. Kurd Genocide Protection and Operation Desert Strike In August 1996, Saddam Hussein ordered an attack on the city of Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. This attack stoked American fears of a genocidal campaign against the Kurds, similar to the campaigns of 1988 and 1991. It also placed Saddam in clear violation of United Nations Security Council Resolution 688, forbidding repression of Iraq's ethnic minorities. Operation Desert Strike launched a series of strikes against Saddam. In that same time frame, Operation Pacific Haven, often referred to as Operation Quick Transit, began a multi-stage effort to provide airlift for as many as 7,000 displaced Kurds to safe areas. Iraqi Weapons of Mass Destruction and Operation Desert Fox Operation Desert Fox was a four-day bombing campaign in 1998 directed at facilities in Iraq believed to be used to produce weapons of mass destruction. The strike was initiated as a result of Saddam Hussein's resistance to comply with United Nations Security Council and the inspection teams. Operation Desert Fox was the largest strike against Iraq in several years. Criticism was received on several accounts as to the extent, methods, intentions, and outcomes of the attack. Ultimately, the highly effective actions taken during the operation were deemed to be a success. Serb Ethnic Violence Prevention and Operation Allied Force After the post-Cold War breakup of Yugoslavia, the Serbian government's gradual oppression over the ethnic Albanian population for almost a decade eventually escalated to violence and mass killings. The international community began to negotiate with Serbian leaders in the spring of 1998 for a solution acceptable to all parties. The Serbs, led by President Slobodan Milosevic, considered the matter an internal one. A final report to negotiate a settlement began in January 1999 at Rambouillet, France, but talks broke down soon after. When diplomacy failed, NATO worried about the possibility of a genocidal civil war and destabilization throughout the Balkan region in southeastern Europe. When President Milosevic unleashed a ruthless offensive designed to crush the Kosovo Liberation Army and drive ethnic Albanians out of Kosovo, the Allies, faced with a massive humanitarian crisis, turned to air power. Operation Allied Force began on 24 March 1999 to force Serbia to accept terms to end the conflict in Kosovo and prevent a repeat of the ethnic cleansing that took place in Bosnia. The operation was initiated with three objectives. Demonstrate opposition to aggression, deter Milosevic from escalating attacks on civilians, and damage Serbia's capability to wage war against Kosovo. Unfortunately, Milosevic's resolve was underestimated. 
What was believed to require a few days of airstrikes turned out to take 78 days, with more than 38,000 sorties to secure the objective. The primary factors that led to the conclusion of the operation were unity and resolve. The lesson was clear to Milosevic that NATO was tough and became progressively tougher throughout the campaign. The precision and persistence of the air campaign was fundamental in convincing Milosevic to end the fight.